Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. with your gumboots on. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Countrywide. I'm your host, Kit Mocken. Hope you had a great week. So good to have your company. Today on the program, we're going to be having a chat about butchers. I wonder when the last time you went to your local butcher was. In the city, big supermarkets have put the squeeze on them, many of which have had to close. But in the outback, a few people are bucking the trend. From raising them as a calf right through to the the day you give it to the customer to put it on their table to eat. The only thing we're not doing is cooking it for them. Pretty good service, that story in just a tick. But first, if you're a long-suffering Australian rugby supporter, this story might cheer you up just a little bit. Aussie honey producers have won a very sweet victory over the Kiwis in their quest to be able to sell Manuka honey. Just like French Champagne and Scottish Scotch, New Zealand producers have long wanted exclusive use of the word Manuka. But the New Zealand-based Manuka Honey Appalachian Society withdrew from appeals it launched in the UK and Europe after losing a trademark case, or several trademark cases, to Australia. And the Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender told Clint Jasper it means that Australian producers are free to sell Manuka honey in those markets. It means to our industry that, you know, the, the industry from our perspective is now significantly de-risked. We were being asked by um, partners and distributors around the world, you know, what's the situation with New Zealand? And obviously we'll be now sharing this outcome with the world through all of our members and channels. Uh, so it's a very, very significant uh, outcome for us. And we wish we hadn't had to go through it, but that's what happened. We've, we don't know for sure if, um, you know, these decisions in the UK and Europe will have any bearing at all on, uh, on what New Zealand uh, does. Uh, we just hope it's a rational conversation. Obviously, we've been asking for collaboration with New Zealand for many years, and that's been uh, turned down at every time. So um, perhaps these outcomes will change their thinking a little bit. Manuka's always been an extremely valuable product, both domestically and in export markets, especially around uh, Southeastern and Eastern Asia. Can you give us an idea of the size of this market? Yeah, Clint, it's very hard to um, put a dollar number on it, but you know the forecast for the general market for Manuka honey is about 1.2 billion by 2027. Now, when you break that down or try to break it down into things like medical products or uh, prebiotics or um, creams, eczema, acne, or other throat lozenges, uh, throat sprays, things like that, it's very difficult to get a, an exact handle on the, the number. But certainly all of the health benefits of the honey are well known globally and a lot of value-add products are now coming to market besides just the honey in the jar. And while Asia has been a big market for Manuka in the past, uh, the US is obviously picking up and Europe's been a reasonable market and the UK for the honey has been a large market for a long time. 
When we last spoke, Paul, just before the hearing that was going to take place before the New Zealand uh, Intellectual Property Office, you were calling on more support from the federal government. I think at the time you weren't receiving much at all. Has the government come through and supported the industry more in the intervening years? Yeah, it's, it's you know, while we've had a change in government, we've uh, re-engaged with the new government and we've had ongoing support specifically for the funding from the Attorney General's office, which has been very helpful, and obviously with uh, trade and agriculture uh, on a watching brief with us as well. So um, they have been more engaged, and um, obviously this outcome is, is, is good for Australia. The Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender speaking there with Clint Jasper about the fight over the word Manuka between Australia and New Zealand. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm Kit Mocken. Sticking with bees, and you may recall hearing that beekeepers in New South Wales, as well as other ones stuck over the border in Victoria, are finally allowed to move their hives over state lines. That's after restrictions put in place to stop the spread of the invasive varroa mite lifted last week. So what's the damage? One beekeeper estimates that the border closures cost his business close to a million dollars. Michael Leahy runs Riverina Honey based in Burrumbuddock, north of Albury. He welcomes the opening of the Victorian border but says it should have happened sooner and worries that it could be closed again without notice. Well, it's probably about time because there was an immense amount of testing done on almonds, which is way back in August. All that material should have been correlated by early September and then the borders really should have been open then. What's been the cost to your business of of these long-running border closures? Well, firstly, because there was a time limit on our ability to get bees across the border from New South Wales back into Victoria, we had 3,000 hives of bees to shift and... Consequently, in two days, we got 2,400 in, but we could not get the last 600 in. So that was a $90,000 cost to our um, operation. That's because you missed missed being able to service the almond industry? Yes. Yep. That was into the um, shifting bees into almonds. And then the bees that were in almonds um, were going back to New South Wales to seed canola crops which was worth another um, $250,000 to us. But when Barula Fly um, come along, they slammed the border shut into New South Wales. So there went another $250,000 loss to our um, business. And then early on, we bought 760 hives of bees out of Queensland with the idea of going back to Queensland with those bees to the Channel Country. Um, to major honey flows out there because they slammed the border sh- uh, shut and they said the um, bees, because I was based in New South Wales, those bees were now New South Wales bees and the border was slammed shut in the face and there goes another $600,000 honey production. So it's been a very costly exercise for our for our operation and I would suggest not only for our operation but for... Um, a good number of other operations. Those figures you just ran through, that's close to a million dollars of loss. Yes, that's right. And our operation, like we support, you know, incomes from nine families. 
So there's a fair amount of trepidation, you know, like with our employees, like whether they're going to have jobs or not, you know, like and how we're faring. It does take a pretty fair toll on everybody, but you just keep going and do the absolute very best that you can do. How are your bees going, particularly those ones, I suppose, that have been stuck in New South Wales and haven't been able to move into Victoria? Has, have there been enough feed sources in New South Wales for them? Well, New South, the bees in New South Wales have actually fared better than the bees that, are locked in, that have been locked into Victoria. We've actually um, fed very close to 40,000 litres of sugar syrup to the bees in Victoria to keep them alive. So because um, the um, nectar sources, because it's been so cold and wet in Victoria, there just hasn't been any honey. And, and consequently, um, yeah, we've been um, feeding bees right up until basically now, where now the weather's started to turn a little bit. There are some um, nectar sources. With a bit of luck, because there's no honey sources in New South Wales, in the lower areas um, of the state, um, it'll be very handy for us to be able to get um, another 1,200 hives of bees out of New South Wales back into Victoria. But the thing is, they've got to go back to New South Wales um, because we don't have the wintering country. It's not quite warm enough in Victoria, so we go north and then you start feeding bees again. So you will be applying for those Agriculture Victoria permits to get your hives into Victoria as quickly as possible? Well, right now we're on sunflower pollination in the southern Riverina. And then when those contracts are finished, yeah, we will be looking to bringing um, the 1,200 hives doing those jobs back into um, Victoria, come back to Great Box Ironbark, around Bendigo and those places. All of that sugar syrup that you fed, have you done that in the past? We've done sugar feeding mainly to grow small hives of bees into big hives of bees. But as far as across the board feeding of um, bees, um, no, no. We've never fed anything like um, the types of numbers that we fed this year. If you lose them, you're you're dead in the water. Is the industry going to recover? The industry will recover because they're pretty resilient people. Yeah, like, um, I just hope that especially our younger part of our industry keeps going. You know, like, the problem comes is, is that these these people can slam these borders shut on the um, 10th of February if they wish. There's no guarantees that this is going to keep happening going forward. You know, like, if there's... If they happen to find Varroa at, say, Dubbo, then suddenly all these borders will be shut again. And, yeah, like the same situation um, then reapplies. Yeah, that's all right to say there's a permit in right now, but that can change tomorrow. It can change the day after. And And everyone's still stranded. Australian beekeepers still not out of the woods. That was Michael Leahy from Riverina Honey speaking with Angus Verley about the varroa mite restrictions which have just lifted. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm your host, Kit Mocken. From the top end to Tassie, Countrywide on ABC Radio. 
just like those maybe looking to lock in a mortgage as interest rates go up. Australia's primary producers are finding it increasingly difficult to borrow money. Kate Hand is a farmer on the New South Wales mid-north coast and she wants to build a new dairy to expand the business that's been in her family for three generations. But as Tina Quinn reports, convincing the bank hasn't been easy. Many Australians are struggling with rising interest rates, but it can be even more difficult for farmers. The Hand family are a good example of that. Their farm in Yarraville, just west of Kempsey, overlooks the Maclay River. You can see that uh, old house just through the trees there. Uh, My father-in-law's father grew up there as a boy. His dad built the house, so that would be my husband's great-grandfather built the house. So they've been here for a long time, over 100 years, the Hand family. And my father-in-law purchased the farm from his father's estate. It was a sunny day when I visited and the wind was blowing through the valley as I headed out to look at the old dairy with Kate Hand. My husband and I bought the farm from his parents in 2018. Kate's been to the bank to ask for a loan for a new dairy. That would be in addition to the existing loan she already has for other work, putting in new irrigation, a feed pad and various other machinery. The average farm loan is about 600000 but Kate's going for over a million. We don't even have a green light from the bank as such. We're investing a lot just in the planning and development before we can present a project plan and budget to the bank to see whether they might actually finance it. And who knows what interest rates will be like by then. Is it even going to be affordable? And what happens then? We can't keep milking in this 40-year-old dairy with a nine-a-side swingover. It's taking us nearly three hours at the moment with our current herd. There's no room for growth and expansion. And our cows are spending too long waiting in the milking yard. It's not fair on them. What interest rate are you currently paying? I don't like to look. Okay. (laughs) Look, it was, yeah, I think we were at about four and a half. I'm sure it's shifted from that. The, the, The monthly interest expense keeps slipping up. And as are all of our inputs, diesel, fertilizer, and... You know, if wages go up, that's going to make things harder as well. So Kate's current interest rate on the overdraft turns out to be 7.5%. So she's paying about $45,000 just in interest to cover that. She's been discussing a loan for $1.5 million, but her lender says that's probably too ambitious. And she's been asked to review the quotes and the project overall. I've been talking to my bank manager He's very supportive of what we're trying to do, but they need to make that fit into within their risk portfolios. And uh, it it does make it very hard. There's not a lot of wiggle room. There's not a big return on assets in our industry. There's not a lot of margin to just swallow these uh, increased costs of finance. Milk prices are good at the moment, but the cost of farm inputs are also really high. So there's a big question mark over profit margins in the business and that's hampering Kate's ability to get finance. It's quite a scary prospect now with rising interest rates. It just makes it so much harder for farmers to, you know, replace ageing infrastructure and make improvements for sustainability and and welfare. 
you know, it's just an ongoing thing. We're just constantly paying interest on the money that we owe. And, you know, we're always having to get new equipment finance. We have to be pretty smart in the way that we manage our, our operations now in dairy because it, it is a, a make or break situation. So many farmers have been going out because it's hard to, to make a dollar these days. I think our industry has done a lot of work. The dairy industry have identified all the things that we need to do. We need to produce more milk from less cows. We need to reduce our emissions. We need to manage our effluent. We need to increase biodiversity on our farms. You can see we've got a lot of tree lines through the creeks and we've got a lot of tree cover on the ridges. That's something that we're really proud of. With Kate's costs only set to increase, relief unfortunately doesn't look any closer in sight. The RBA will meet for the first time this year in February, with analysts predicting a ninth straight rate rise to follow. Tina Quinn with that report, and you can read more about that story on our website at abc.net.au slash rural. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. While their city cousins are struggling, regional butchers are struggling to keep up with demand for local meat products. It comes as consumers are increasingly preferring paddock-to-plate products and further transparency in the meat industry. In country Australia, butchers are changing their businesses to meet the demands, as Lucy Cooper reports. As long as he can remember, Stuart Christensen has loved butchers. Whenever we went somewhere, I'd stare through a butcher shop window. And so one day, decided to buy a butcher shop. After moving to the outback Queensland town of Hewarden, four hours inland from Townsville, Mr Christensen has opened Flinders Butcher in the small town, home to 1,100 people. It's always the best idea to have the best product you can have. My, my terms, if you, if you wouldn't eat it yourself, you wouldn't serve it to a customer. So that's my philosophy with the meat industry. In the tourist season, we get extremely busy. Um, the, the numbers swell by the hundreds every week. Uh, and they, they appreciate the effort. Um, and, yeah, they, some of them say they just come here to go to the butcher shop to buy something. That, that's how you look. So this makes us feel good. And, yeah. Mr Christensen has a local property and slaughterhouse which has created a full paddock-to-plate experience for his customers. And it's paying off. Since we've bought the butcher shop, um, we've had an estimate we've gone up 500% in sales. Um, yeah, virtually sky's the limit, but yeah, staff, so staff, staffing is the issue to have enough staff to be able to do anything. Further along the Flinders Highway in the township of Richmond, you'll meet Keegan Nelson and Lorraine Johnston, the proud owners of Moselle Meats. Lorraine says she was surprised to end up in the trade, given she used to be a banker. Mainly his idea, so his parents have been in the industry for many years, 20 plus years, so they had the avatar for us, it was more of we wanted something for ourselves, so we bought the butcher shop five years to finish their plan on, on selling their own products, so that's how it all started, it was him, I'm a banker, by, when I first met him, now I'm a butcher. Mr Nelson said, given demand for their product, it's hard to source everything from the small township. What we can source locally ourselves we do, so all our lamb in store, our goat, our mutton, um, a lot of our beef, so whatever we can source off quarter beef we do. We do have to buy a few ribs and rumps in obviously because you can't keep up with your local trade, but 
Yeah, everything we can possibly source we do. Our pigs come from Charles Towers, that's the closest piggery. Um, yeah, and everything we can sort of get out of North Queensland right down to our jams and chutneys and everything like that's from a local lady here makes them and yeah, it's good. We try and keep as much as we can, as local as we can to keep the money around this area. Moselle Meats is also a closed supply chain operation, which Mr Nelson says not only cuts costs, but provides transparency to consumers. We've got the complete supply chain from from raising them as a calf right through to the, the day you give it to the customer to put it on their table to eat. The only thing we're not doing is cooking it for them. Um, but for us it is, it's very important to be able to put our hands on the whole food chain, to be able to control the product from start to finish and to be able to guarantee to someone that it's good. Given the Flinders Butcher has recently undergone a new reno and Moselle Meats only opened in 2018, it would appear butchers across Australia are going pretty well. But according to qualified butcher and consultant Alison Meager, these guys are an exception to the rule. I see a lot closing and I guess if you don't see them, you don't think about them anymore, do you? Miss Meager says providing a paddock to plate experience is what consumers want and butchers need to adapt to that. Otherwise, they won't be able to compete with supermarkets. People really want to know where their cows come from, right? And you can kill your own beasts. It's a much more relaxed method as well. Like, the cows are much happier. It'd be awesome if people were doing more paddock-to-plate stuff. I think it's going to go that way anyway because people are more concerned about where their, their products come from, aren't they? And you'd think pulling 12-hour days every day as a butcher might make you sick of meat. Think again. I love all meat. I shouldn't, they say, but yeah. Um, I love a nice piece of rump steak. I'd, I'd eat it five days a week. Do you eat it five days a week? Pretty well, yes. Stuart Christensen, owner of the Flinders Butcher, finishing that report from Lucy Cooper. Gee, if I own my own butchery, I might eat meat every day too. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm Kit Mocken. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide. The politics of food and farming. It's a billion-dollar problem, according to farmers and regional councils, but there's not enough money, or importantly, people, to fix it. After the massive floods around New South Wales, it's estimated that there are 10,000 kilometres of regional roads that need repairing, and farmers say that they can't get themselves or their produce in or out. With councils unable to manage, David Clawton looks at the call to allow farmers to fix the roads themselves. It's self-help on a very big scale. It takes big machines to make a road, but many landholders have the equipment and are used to maintaining the roads on their own properties. Now they want to fix the council's roads, but they can't get insurance and liability cover. The Vice President of the New South Wales Farmers Association, Rebecca Reardon, says it's a billion dollar problem and the liability issue needs to be solved to find the people and equipment to do the massive job ahead. They've just thrown a billion dollars at Western Sydney and um, you know, earlier in the month they said half a million dollars to fix a few potholes around the state. Well, only $280 million of that is going to rural and regional councils and you know that's barely going to fill in a few potholes compared to what actually needs to be done across the state. We don't believe the government is contributing enough funds. In fact, what they're contributing is a joke compared to the actual size of the task. But we've got to find the resources. And a lot of our members and farmers are saying, look, I need my local road graded, repaired, just so I can operate. 
um, and they're offering the help, but they're getting caught up in red tape and saying, well, the government says, oh, no, you've got to go to local council, and local council doesn't want to touch it. There's a whole liability issue. And so the red tape is just um, a disaster for being able to get on and actually get the job done when all our farmers want is a decent road they can get in and out of town on and get their produce in and out of. Convincing the state government to spend almost 10 times more on regional roads will be tough, given there's not many votes in rural areas. But Rebecca Reardon says agriculture in New South Wales is worth $23 billion, and there's a lot of jobs and food tied up in the sector. Braidwood farmer Peter Jansen is one of those landholders who's offered to help his council repair the roads around his farm. His property was badly burnt in the Black Summer fire, so he was trying to get things back up and running when his access was cut off by recent floods. He had approval from council to repair sections of the council-managed access road himself, but he couldn't get an answer about who would cover insurance and liability. We've got quite a bit of equipment here. I've got a backhoe and a, and a 15-tonne excavator and we've got tractors and all sorts of things. Um, my neighbours have recently got a, a new $100,000 tractor with a, a greater blade on it. And our, our internal farm roads are probably twice as good as the current access roads that are owned by council. But the problem is, again, they keep putting impediments in the way. Uh, you know, council have said to us, well, you can fix the roads, but you're not to touch this part and this part and that part. And essentially the parts that they exclude are the parts that really need doing first and foremost. And that's probably one of our greatest issues at the moment is getting vehicles across that creek crossing. It's so they weren't going to pay you to do any of that work, were they? No, no. And we didn't, hadn't discussed money. They were not going to pay us. But you um, wanted to have some cover for liability if your equipment got damaged or someone got hurt. Well, is that right? We, we wanted to know our position more than anything else. Um, and they flatly refused in their letters to us saying that they would not comment. So what was the outcome? Did the road get repaired? No, it's still diabolical. Have you got any crops or livestock there that needs to... Uh, no, not, not at the moment. Uh, we're still recovering from the bushfire, essentially. The Local Government Association of New South Wales puts the total repair bill for regional roads at $2.5 billion, based on figures from the NRMA. President Daria Turley lives in Broken Hill, and she thinks the self-help model is needed because there just aren't enough council staff or contractors to get the massive job done. She wants the New South Wales Roads Minister to approve a trial, and she thinks farmers would do a good job. A lot of farmers do have their own certifications to do that. I know quite a few farmers who do, and that self-repair of roads does seem like the common sense approach, but... You know, that we're hamstrung by those liability and standards that councils have to uh, maintain and the liability issue. Um, I know there's one council, and uh, I think it's Canample Council, had put a proposal to the government around that. They had farmers on board. They thought it was viable supervision, and the government had said the liability risk is too great. And yet sometimes we put staff onto equipment that haven't been there for years you know so I, I wonder you know if the government could try that but would the farmer be liable or would the council be liable and if the government approved it would they be liable and it will be interesting to see and Sam Faraway is looking for solutions he's a minister his, his that solution is though when we spoke to him was landholders should just get certified by the council and then you can be paid to do the work and covered by their liability but how practical is that 
Well, I don't know what certification he's talking about. Well, um, well any and, kind and of earth-moving company would have to get certified through, you know, you'd have to you'd tender and you'd have to get approved, yeah? but you'd need to meet certain conditions. And for most of it, the operator, the plant operator, has to have a qualification and you can't just give that and they have to go through the process of um, approval. And if it was that simple, when Canamble Council asked to do that, the government would have said, here's the way forward. But unfortunately, they stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. With 10,000 kilometres of roads to be repaired and farmers all over the state struggling to get equipment, grains, livestock and people on and off farms, this issue isn't going away anytime soon. Farmer ingenuity is not new, but that definitely is a new one to me. David Clawton with that report about the idea of farmers fixing flood-damaged roads in New South Wales. That's all we have time for today on Countrywide. I'm your host, Kit Mocken. It's been really good to have your company today. If you do want to check out some of the stories you've heard, you can head to our website at abc.net.au slash rural. Bye for now.